Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch, real bourbon, no apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Campari America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Insight. Ali here, and joining me is Charlie. How are you, Charlie? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. And I am so excited to introduce some additional help tonight. Joining us is Brooke from Actual Innocence Podcast. Welcome, Brooke. Hello. Thanks for calling me the help. I feel like I've contributed now. <laughs> I appreciate it. So before we begin on this week's case, there has been a major announcement on a case that we covered in our first episode, Laurie Erica Ruff. And it turns out her name isn't really Laurie Erica Ruff after all. She's really a Pennsylvanian woman named Kimberly McLean. So long story short, late last year, a former nuclear physicist and a forensic genealogist by the name of Colleen Fitzpatrick, who, like a lot of us, was obsessed with the case, she had been testing a DNA sample that the Ruff family had previously submitted, and she discovered that Laurie had a first cousin named Michael Cassidy. Colleen gets in touch with a former Social Security Administration investigator named Joe Velling, and Joe agrees to talk to the Cassidy family. And as soon as they see Laurie's driver's licence photo, they confirm that Laurie is in fact Kimberly McLean. It turns out that Kimberly was not happy when her mother and father separated when she was 18 years old, because that would involve her moving and starting a new school. Kimberly tells her mother that she is leaving for good, and she does. But how on earth does she get from Kimberly to Becky Sue Turner? That's anyone's guess. And how she goes from running away from home because her parents split up to the bizarre behaviour of Laurie Erica Ruff, well, I guess there are parts to this story that will remain a mystery. So what do you guys think of all this? I think one of the key points in her disappearance was that there was a stepfather who came onto the scene. And in the 80s, you could leave and cut off contact with your family without much difficulty. Yet she went through two layers of identity change. She really didn't want to be found. So I'm not willing to let go of the theory that there was something darker yes. going on that would make her want that. But it would just be speculation at this point. The only family member who spoke in an interview with the Seattle Times was her uncle. Yes. And it's hard to know how much he would know anyway. And I mean, even parents and siblings don't always know what's happening in someone's life, even when they live in the home. So I do think she was running from something. I don't know that we'll ever know what it is. And I don't know that it's necessarily our business to know what it is. But I'm glad her mom has an answer. Yes. And her daughter as well. And then there was a gap between her leaving home and becoming Becky Sue Turner. We don't know what's happened in the years in between that time. So one of the my other thoughts with 
this story is a lot of people are a little disappointed that it was kind of an anticlimactic. She didn't run away from a cold. She, I mean, my personal favorite theory was, you know, favorite as in favored, like the one I thought it was, was that she was a foster child. And that's why she hadn't been, yeah, she hadn't been reported missing. In this case, she wasn't reported missing because she told her family, I'm leaving and I don't want contact. So she really actually wasn't missing. She knew where she was, and she was where she wanted to be. But it is not that this has any, like, this is not at all about me. However, I'm still, it's hard when your favorite mystery is solved. And now I feel like I have a void in this, my mystery side, and I'm currently looking for a new, a new one that I read, because this was the one I would read about when "Ah, I can't sleep. Let me go see if there's a new theory out there. So I need a new one. If anyone has any interesting ones, send them my way. Go for Tannis. Oh, Tannis. Oh, geez. Once I heard that they look for (laughs) runners, I was like, not me. I'm not running. A famous philosopher whose name I can't think of said that you're only happy when you're anticipating future happiness. So anticipating that her mystery will be solved is fun. But once the mystery is solved, it's not fun anymore because you've lost the anticipation that it's going to happen. That's probably true. Which it's really, it's not about me. I'm glad her family has answers. But again, send me your favorite mysteries because I'm looking for a new one. (laughs) Okay, so tonight we are talking about somewhat of a big story over here in Australia. One that everyone has an opinion of. And it's also a listener suggestion from Brie. Tonight we are going to be discussing the death of Azaria Chamberlain and a subsequent conviction and acquittal of her mother, Lindy Chamberlain. So on March 4, 1948, Alice Lynn Murchison, or Lindy, is born in New Zealand. Her father was a pastor for the Seventh-day Adventist Church, and once a year, the family would move for Lindy's father to work with a new church. When Lindy was almost two, her family relocates to Victoria, Australia, where she would grow up. On November 18, 1969, 21-year-old Lindy marries Michael Lee Chamberlain, who was an Adventist pastor like her father. Now, the Seventh-day Adventist church, it wasn't a widely understood religion during this time in Australia, and people's prejudices against the Adventist religion, that comes into play in later media stories about the family. But we'll get to that a bit later. So shortly after they were married... Lindy and Michael move to Tasmania while Michael continues his pastor work. While they are living there, they have their first child, Aidan Lee, who was born on October 2nd, 1973. They stay in Tasmania for five years and then they move to North Queensland and have their second child, another boy, Regan Michael, on April 16, 1976. And as much as Lindy and Michael both loved their boys, they really wanted a girl. So obviously, they were ecstatic when on June 11, 1980, Azaria Chantel Lauren Chamberlain was born. By all accounts, Lindy took to motherhood easily, and there was no evidence that she suffered from postpartum depression or any other mental illness. There was no reported accounts of any type of violence within the household, And Lindy was, again reportedly, calm and loving towards Azaria. So on August 13, 1980, Lindy, Michael, the two boys, and nine-week-old Azaria 
They get into the family's yellow hatchback and leave their home in the mining town of Mount Isa for their holiday in the Northern Territory. They arrive at the campsite at Ayers Rock, or Uluru as it's now known, three days later on Saturday, August 16. They pitched their tent next to their car, which was normal practice at the time. Now, as I said, back then Uluru was known as Ayers Rock, and at that time, tourists were able to camp right around the base of the rock and climb on top of it. That's not allowed anymore, but it's what happened at the time. The next morning, Michael takes the two boys to climb Uluru, and Lindy goes off with Azaria to explore some caves. Lindy reports later that she sees a dingo watching Azaria during this time. Wait, can I interrupt and ask what a dingo is? A dingo, <laughs> a dingo is a wild dog, probably similar to a coyote. Would that be a fair assumption, Charlie? Yeah, I actually they they look quite a bit lovelier than a coyote. They're not quite so mangy looking, but yeah, they're a wild dog. I would say, from what I've read about them and their personality and stuff, they are very similar to coyotes. Do they howl like coyotes? Yes. Like that? They do. So you hear them in the distance and stuff? Yes. Up in the top end of Australia, people do keep them as pets. However, it's not recommended because they are quite unpredictable. After sunset, the Chamberlain family meet with another couple, Greg and Sally Lowe, who are also camping with their own baby. They have a barbecue and are talking about the day's activities. Around 8 o'clock, Sally reports seeing a dingo following her to the camp's garbage disposal. Michael and Aidan also feed a dingo some crusty bread and they see the dingo eat a mouse. Lindy scolds them for feeding the dingo and encouraging it to stay around the campsite. She's feeling uneasy after seeing the dingo earlier that day. And not long after this, Lindy puts Azaria down to sleep in the same tent as her four-year-old brother Regan, who was already asleep. Ten minutes later, Lindy and some other of the campers hear Azaria's cry. Lindy heads over to the tent, and she later reports to police that she sees a dingo backing its way out of the tent, but she cannot see its face. Lindy checks the tent. Azaria is gone. So here's something that occurred to me when I was reading about this, and I don't know, maybe I should save it to the end, but I'll just go ahead with it. A lot of what I've read online that makes people doubt some of the stories that dingoes are fairly timid with humans, they wouldn't have gone into a tent on the off chance, just that they might be able to find a small person in there because they would be afraid there was a big person in there, and how would a dingo even know a baby was there? So first, you've already said the dingoes were eating out of people's hands. You know, any wild animal that's in close proximity to humans that are feeding them, I don't know if you've ever been camping and raccoons will come like right up to your tent to try to grab your food. They just get used to humans and they're not as timid. But I also wondered if there were reports of hearing Azaria cry But what if she started crying a little bit earlier and that alerted the dingo that there was a baby in there? So being me, I actually did some research on this. There are actually researchers in Canada who did a study and found that mammals can actually recognize the cries of other species and recognize the cries of infants from other species. And I suspect predators would be able to do this especially 
since recognizing the distress of like a smaller, more vulnerable prey would be pretty important. Yeah, now I have a weird search on my computer to go along with my searches (laughs) on meth psychosis and Ford trucks and all of that. But I was wondering if maybe Azaria started stirring and she made noise and that attracted the dingo to the tent. And I think the problem here is leading up to Azaria's disappearance, the tourists were feeding the dingoes a lot more often than they had previously. It was part of sort of the touristy thing to do. And we don't know about the dingoes, what food was available for the dingoes out more away from civilization. That might might have not been so readily available, which would mean they would be coming closer to people. I went camping a lot when I was a child. And I remember one time we had like a screen tent where we kept all of our food. And a yep. raccoon got into the screen tent. You know, it was closed, but it ripped a hole in the screen tent opened a Tupperware full of cookies and ate like three dozen cookies. I don't know how the raccoon knew the cookies were in there, but it did and it got to them. Lindy goes back and raises the alarm and straight away all the other campers get together to look for tracks or pieces of clothing. Nearly 300 people join the search, except for Michael. Michael tells a fellow camper that he wasn't searching because she's probably dead by now or whatever happens, it is God's will. So after the baby goes missing, the Northern Territory Police are called, and they get there in about 15 minutes. And also some local Aboriginal trackers are called, and they arrive within like an hour. And so the police find dingo tracks around and inside the tent. They find blood that was later matched to Azaria on the mattress, on the tent itself, and near the bassinet that she was sleeping in, and next to the dingo tracks. An officer examines the Chamberlain's car with a strong flashlight, air quotes, because remember, it's nighttime and it's really dark and he finds no sign of blood in the car. The Aboriginal trackers follow the dingo tracks for as far as they could. And at one point, they find drag marks in the sand and they come across two places of shallow depressions in the sand. So it's kind of what you would expect if the dingo put down a bundle while he needed to rest or readjust his grip. Um, And in one of the depressions, there was an imprint of a knitted garment. And next to the other depression, there was a small dark patch in the sand. And they assumed it was blood, but it was never tested. So after an extensive search, Azaria was never found. It would have been a difficult search anyway because... Remember, it's the middle of the desert here. It would have been pitch black dark and it would have been so cold. I think that was one of the things that the trackers were worried about was could Azaria survive anyway because of the cold conditions? Can I ask what what would make an Aboriginal tracker be called on top of the police? Does that make sense? The Aboriginal trackers know the area. They know how the dingoes hunt. So in missing persons cases in the desert or in the forest, like with the William Tyrrell case, they, the police do work with Aboriginal trackers. That night, everyone believed Lindy. This yes. suspicion didn't come till later. None of the campers that were there were suspicious of them at all. 300 people were searching and everyone was looking for 
signs of where the dingoes brought a baby. Everybody believed her that night. Yep, the police did. The trackers never doubted her. And so on August 24th of 1980, which was one week after Azaria went missing, a local photographer was out taking photos of wildflowers, and he found some of Azaria's bloodstained clothes near the base of Ayers Rock which I hope I'm saying right, which That's is about right. five kilometers or about three miles away from where the Chamberlain's campsite was. They found a torn onesie, booties, a tank top, and a diaper. But the little white manatee jacket that Lindy insists that Azari was wearing was the only item of clothing that was never found. The trackers believe that the clothes were found next to what was once a dingo den. The head investigator makes note that Azaria's clothes were found where the family had hiked earlier on the day she disappeared. I wanted to just, I had a thought about Michael not searching and people thinking this is kind of suspicious because he's just like, oh, she must be dead. And that was my first reaction. So I'm right there with everybody. But I tried to think about other reasons why he wouldn't search for his baby other than that he you know, knew that they had already killed her or Lindy had. And the only thing I could really come up with is that if he truly believed a dingo had taken his baby, it's possible that the thought of finding his infant daughter in whatever condition she would have been in was just paralyzing and it was too much for him to handle. And I mean, we'd like to all think that we'd put aside all our own fears for our children, but I mean, the thought of finding my child in that condition maybe that was just too far for him this wasn't like a normal abduction this is an wild animal taking a child with you know sharp teeth your mind plays tricks who knows what he was thinking he definitely would have been going through some sort of shock and also honestly if he knew she was dead and wouldn't be found and he was trying to cover it up he would have actually gone searching Exactly, And he would have searched harder because and put on like a really good show about it because guilty people trying to look innocent don't go out of their way to try to look guilty. I mean, he would have gone. He would have made a big production about looking for her. Working with people who have a lot of trauma, it bothers me a lot when people are like, oh, he was he wasn't acting like you're supposed to act when you lose a child. But everybody reacts to trauma different. It's not, there's not like a set way that you have to react to trauma. It's not like in the rule book, if your child dies and you have to act like this, it's everybody handles it the way that they can. I think if we look at the Susan Smith case, I mean, she did drown her boys and she put on quite the production for the cameras to where, I mean, yeah, some people were suspicious of her because we're just always suspicious of the parents, but for the most part, she did everything textbook the way you should look when you're grieving, yet she is the one who killed her son. So you you really can't judge. Absolutely. And I don't know if you guys saw the um, the JonBenet documentary, but even yes. then, you know, a lot of the evidence or a lot of their conclusions were that the family didn't act like you should when there is a tragedy like that. You know, the son didn't act the way he should. and And there's no way that a kid should act. I mean... Kids all handle trauma differently. I've worked with kids who had a parent die and they were fine. Or I've worked with kids whose dog died and, you know, they were beside themselves. So it's not, there's not a set way that someone acts when they're traumatized. 
So immediately and in the days after, the police didn't doubt that this was a case of a dingo taking Azaria, and it was widely reported as a dingo attack. But then confusion started. Rumors found their way into the narrative. An early and baffling question was, were Lindy and Michael even Azaria's parents? I mean, and that's only the beginning of the rumors and questions that followed that had very little basis. So some other of the massive rumors that not only made it into the papers, but I see them repeated on online forums discussing this case even today. One is that Azaria was murdered by a relative. Either her mom did it or her dad did it or both did it. Maybe one of her brothers did it. They did it for notoriety or for money or because Lindy was jealous of a daughter or she had postpartum depression. I think you get the idea. Any reason at all. So later, a story came out that Azaria wasn't a healthy child. Lindy had taken her to the doctor, concerned that she had a condition that was causing her to spit up more than normal, and that because she was this ill, either she wanted to save Azaria from a life of misery, or she wanted to save herself from the burden of having an ill child, take your pick. I do want to note that this condition, apparently her other children had it as well when they were infants, and I've had two kids with severe um, spitting up problems, so it's not exactly a life of burden. But anyway, these are how the rumors go. Then there's the question that maybe Michael wasn't the father, and Lindy or Michael killed Azaria because of that. Uh, Let's see, oh, we mentioned the religious angle that... They were very religious people, and they were in a faith that was not really understood, and it was seen as a fringe faith, and maybe they thought Azari was possessed by Satan, because why not? And the police started looking harder at the possibility that this was murder. They kind of started leaning towards just a plain, flat, Lindy's kind of crazy theory. So the evidence... To back up, Azaria being sick, possessed, not Michael's child, Lindsay's postpartum depression, or her mental illness, none of it exists. While you can look at this case and maybe start thinking some of the physical evidence points towards foul play, no one can give a motive without anything to back it up. And trust me, I looked. Now, A lot of this was due to the story being one of the most publicized in Australian history, even to this day. And in Australia, dingoes are not always seen as ferocious animals. And I admit, I don't know much more than that they're wild dogs. And I imagine them to be like coyotes. But online, people seem to consider them rather timid. And people would try to pet them. And Ali said that people will keep them as pets, even though they're wild animals. So there was a perception that a dingo wouldn't have done this, period. So the rumors of motive are one thing, but the rumors of the family's odd behavior was another. So let's talk about the black dress, because this, this one really interested me. This was a strange story. Yeah, it's actually recorded in an early police report that When Lindy brought Azaria in for her newborn checkup, the baby was dressed in all black. And that the doctor thought this was weird, so he went and looked up the meaning of Azaria's name. And it meant sacrifice in the wilderness. So 
According to Lindy, the dress was actually a dress she made for her older son, Regan. And she was it was just being used as a hand me down. You can actually see this a picture of this dress online because it's at the National Museum Australia and it's part of their collection. And you can see a ton of Azaria. I don't want to call it memorabilia. I don't know what you would call it, but they have an entire exhibit on it and you can see it online. It is a black dress, but it has red ribbon and it has red booties. And Lindy wore a matching outfit. Yes. To the to the doctor's appointment, and she said people either loved or hated the dress. If you look at any other picture of Zaria, she's wearing white or pastel, more traditional baby colors. It's not as though they dressed her like Wednesday Adams all the time. And for the meaning of the baby's name, Sacrifice in the Wilderness, I actually need to have a little side discussion with you. So, Brooke, if you ever have kids, how much would the meaning of the name play into your name choice? Very little. What about you, Allie? You have you have a couple little people. What about you? It actually played a major part of naming our children and each of their names, the meanings mean something to us. One of my kids, I have five of them, and one of them, their name means gravelly homestead. So obviously nice. I don't. <laughs> yeah, that's a good one, right? So I don't, I obviously don't care that much, but regardless Sacrifice in the wilderness isn't even what Azaria means. It means, no. you know, helped of God, blessed of God, some kind of variation on that. It's a Hebrew name. Yes. So let's say you take a black dress and a baby whose name you think means sacrifice in the wilderness. Religious people you don't know a lot about and the baby dies in the wilderness. So, of course, Azaria must have been killed in a religious sacrifice. And there are stories that even link that. Chamberlain's to Jonestown, which was the mass suicide of Jim Jones's People's Temple followers on the other side of the world. Which I don't understand how that could be linked. Oh, I have no idea. I I was not aware that Jim Jones had any non-Americans or non-North Americans go down to Guyana. Isn't that where they went? Wherever they went. I don't think, I didn't know that his People's Temple made it international. Yeah, I didn't realize that either. I, I mean, I've done, I've wrote a paper on him and I didn't, I don't think there was very many people. Now that we're done talking about the rumors that took hold, let's get to what we kind of, I don't know, all expect or probably even to some extent do ourselves. And I'll admit it, even when I talk myself out of it, I judge the parents based on their demeanor. It forms my early opinions of a missing child or a murder child case, even though I know I need to dial myself back because like Brooke said, people process trauma differently. But I think that's just human nature. I think that's we are we are designed to judge people based on what they show to us. If you think of it from a primal side, we do that because that's a survival tactic to be able exactly. to judge people and their safety instantly. I am a child therapist and I work with a lot of different parrots and different children. And I want to say I have learned a lot of lessons from that because in the beginning, I would, a parent would come in and they would be, you know, have a certain demeanor and I would be like, oh no, this is not going to work. Like they're not going to show up for their appointments. And then they would be the best parent that I had ever worked with. And so I've had to really like check myself and my biases when I have kids come 
because I am apparently not very good at that or I'm not as good as I thought I was at determining how a parent's attendance is going to be, you know, um, and how they're going to follow through with the treatment based on how they look or how, what their demeanor is. Yeah, I think we all think we're better at it than we actually are. And I think that played a lot into what everything Lindy and Michael, particularly Lindy, said or did or even wore became part of the speculation. So Lindy was very attractive and she was very stylish. So she was the type of person who would make a matching black and red mommy baby outfits. And none of this changed when Azaria went missing. So she would show up and people would think, wow, she's rather camera ready. You know, she has a trendy hairstyle. She would wear light sundresses. She didn't look what people expected a grieving mother to look like. She has since said in interviews that she would cry on camera, people would accuse her of acting. When she wouldn't cry, she was accused of being cold. In one thing I read, she said, if some, if you showed some people a video of the dingo taking Azaria, they still wouldn't believe it. Yeah. People just didn't believe her. And I looked at a bunch of those early interviews And like I said, I'm not immune to making those snap judgments based on how parents are acting. And she was all over the place. Sometimes she was crying. Then she'd kind of be hard and aggressive and not particularly likable. And then there's an interview where a reporter, I don't know, challenges her a bit about the baby's clothing not being torn apart, as you'd think a wild animal would do. And then she just... She, like, matter-of-factly describes how dingoes handle their prey to explain how it could have happened. It's kind of disturbing because you can't help thinking, this is her child she's talking about. But if I let go of that knee-jerk reaction and kind of think it through, maybe she was hard and aggressive because she had been dealing with daily accusations about every aspect of her life. And maybe she spoke kind of -of matter-of-factly about the dingo and what it might have done because she had detached herself so thoroughly from the incident just so she could get out of bed in the morning. Yes. So I don't think any of this, the rumors, Lindy's personality, any of that should be evidence in the court or even in the court of public opinion. So again, I'll, I think I said it before, if you think Lindy had something to do with this, at least look at the evidence and not the rumors and what the media drug up about her it was definitely uh, and i know lindy has said she doesn't like this wording but it really was a trial by media the first of many inquests started on december 16 1980 the coroner heard from local park rangers about six recent really aggressive attacks by quote unquote tame park dingoes and these attacks were on humans and mostly children There was one attack where a toddler was pulled out of a car and then mauled by a dingo. The police put forth their beliefs that they believed the evidence showed that Azaria's clothing was planted by Lindy or Michael, that the clothes showed signs that they were removed by a human and not a dingo. The police believing that there was no way a dingo could carry a 10-pound baby any distance. After hearing all the evidence, the coroner's report was highly critical of the police investigation. He said that he thought that the Northern Territory Police 
may have been against the idea it could possibly be a dingo attack and disregarded any evidence that pointed that way. In the end, the coroner ruled that it was his opinion that there was no evidence showing that Lindy and or Michael was responsible for Azaria's death. However, he did say that the oddities in the baby's clothing, it was consistent with Azaria's body being taken by a dingo, but then disposed by person or persons unknown. And the story should have ended there, but it didn't. Because of coroner's criticism about the police investigation, the police decided to continue their investigation after the inquest had finished. The clothing was not photographed when it was found and where it was found. It was photographed later. So this actually led to some more rumors because, like, you know, I'm on a rumor kick with this one. (laughs) There are rumors that the clothes were found folded and, you know, they weren't how you would expect. I mean, a dingo doesn't fold clothes. However... The reports actually indicate that the clothes seemed partially buried, but they, I mean, they weren't strewn about, but they weren't folded. And a photographer found them, right? It kills Mm -hmm. me that the photographer didn't take any pictures. He could have just snapped a quick picture, but as far as I know, there are no pictures. And what I read was that there weren't any pictures, and that's what led to these rumors of how it was found. And I think the coroner was sort of suggesting that the police were involved in maybe, I don't want to say tampering with the evidence, but in when they said that, um, that he believed that Azari's body was taken by a dingo and then disposed by person or persons unknown, I think that was his way of maybe suggesting that the police were more involved with the evidence than they should have been. Well, we talked about this because I watched the video And I was like, wait, first, in one breath, he's clearing the parents of any involvement. And in the next, he's saying persons or persons unknown may have interfered with the body of the baby. And so I sent you a message, I think, saying, wait, I'm confused. And you're like, I think he was talking about the police. Which is why I think the police then aren't happy with that. And they continue a quiet, unaggressive investigation after that. So is that normal after an inquest is complete for the police to continue investigating after the coroner's made a determination? That's not normal. No, no. I was speaking to you both this morning. There was one occasion with the Daniel Morecambe case where the inquest did lead to a further investigation and then a trial and then a conviction, but that is very rare. So the investigators continued to work on their case against Lindy. Some dingoes that were shot following the disappearance were dissected so they could look for human bones or protein or any kind of remains. And they tested samples of Azaria's clothing to see if the tears were consistent with the dingo's teeth or if it was something that a human would have had to do with scissors or a knife or some kind of sharp object. Um, and in the dramatization I watched, their mes- their methods were highly questionable. The one where they, like, threw diapers at dingoes? No, the one where, like, some of the evidence fell on the floor and he was, like, scooping it up off the floor. Yes. They interviewed other campers who were there that night again, and they noted that people who saw Lindy just before Azaria was put down for the night assumed that she was assumed that she was holding a baby when they saw her holding a when they saw her holding a white bundle to her chest. One woman said she saw part of a baby's head also in the dramatization. That she hadn't seen the baby but she'd seen like a quarter of her head. 
Were they suggesting there that she was just had some maybe folded up clothes pretending she had the baby or that the baby had already been killed? I'm not sure what they're suggesting there. I think they were implying that the baby had already been killed. And even at one point in this dramatization of the true story, they had like this magazine cover with her and Azaria on it. And they were saying like the child was already dead, like in the picture, like she was holding up like. Oh, the one that she's holding her up. Yes. But that doesn't it doesn't account for uh, not just Lindy and Michael hearing Azaria cry, but other campers hearing her cry later on. Oh yeah, it completely ignores every other witness testimony and what people actually testified to at the trial, even so their early statements. But I was reading an early police report on it, and it actually made it sound like they thought maybe Lindy had killed the baby on the hike because the clothes were found near the trail. Though, let's be honest, if, I mean, I Google Earth this, the trail's not, I mean, it goes around the rock. Everywhere near the rock is near the trail. Anyway, the reason this looks like they're thinking, this was their thinking, is they made a point to say that no witnesses saw the baby after that point. They only saw Lindy carrying around a white bundle. But I find that hard to believe. I mean, why would she be carrying around this bundle? She could have just told everybody, oh, the baby's already asleep. Why walk around with an empty bundle? And it makes sense if she was, I mean, she was a little baby and you don't want people touching them and breathing on them. You wrap them up and hold them so that people can't do that. I always wore those cloth baby slings and people be like, oh, can I see the baby? And I'm like, no, thank you. (laughs) When cold and flu season is over, give me a call. But, I mean, it just doesn't line up with the eyewitness evidence. And this theory falls apart pretty quickly, and that's why it probably didn't go any farther. It was all leading to September 18th in 1981, when the Northern Territory Police finally got a warrant to search the Chamberlain family home. They searched it for more than four and a half hours, and they seized over 300 items from the home, including clothes, scissors, and the yellow family car that they had driven to their trip to the rock. Based on the evidence on the items they removed from the house, the motion was filed for a second inquest in November of 1981. And earlier, Allie, I was asking you, what what exactly is an inquest? A coronial inquest is when the police believe that the person is deceased and the investigation has been closed. And they, the coroner looks at all the evidence and all of this is made public record, So, which is why the investigation has to be closed because everything has to be on the table. And so the coroner looks at all the evidence leading up to the person's death and surrounding the death and they make a determination on how that person died, when and where. That makes sense. So the tipping point of getting this inquest approved was when they dismantled the car, they apparently found large amounts of blood from a small child. And the type of blood they allegedly found, or their test was positive for, is a protein in blood that you would see in a baby that's six months or younger. Yes. So the second inquest into Azaria's death opens on December 14, 1981. The police barrister makes it clear from the get-go that it's their belief that Lindy Chamberlain took Azaria from the campsite on the night she disappeared and murdered her in the family's car with a sharp object, most likely scissors. 
They argued that there was no way that the tears in Azaria's jumpsuit could be made by a dingo and it was more consistent with scissor cuts. They also hammered Lindy with questions about the blood found in the car, asking her if she remembered seeing any blood or if she remembered cleaning any blood off the seats. The blood evidence was enough to convince the coroner and he stated in his report that he believed that Lindy was responsible for Azaria's death and that Michael was an accessory after the fact. And then it heads to trial. And I'm just going to put this question here. We don't have to answer it. But when in the world do they think she did this? I mean, she was gone for five to ten minutes. And I would assume that, I mean, knowing my eldest son, which would have been about their eldest son's age, he is always with me. So I would imagine that he would have been with Lindy. Why didn't he see anything? They certainly weren't that far out of eyesight range if they could also hear crying. I mean, they weren't that far from their sleeping children. I wonder about the sleeping brother in the same tent. I know that after I put a child down for a nap, I tiptoe around the house because I don't want to wake them up. So I feel kind of confused about how the sleeping child didn't hear the dingo come in and and take his sister. I have a variety of children, and I have ones where you could bang cymbals over their head and they'd stay asleep. Got it. Unfortunately, that's not my current toddler. You can't breathe too loudly or he wakes up. So I think that's just a child-dependent thing. Yeah, I'm the same. My eldest, we had an earthquake. He fell out of bed and he didn't wake up. So the trial starts September 13, 1982. And Lindy is pregnant with her and Michael's fourth child when the trial starts. So the prosecution's witnesses, they seem to help the defense more than the prosecution's case. The Lowe's, if you remember Greg and Sally Lowe, they were the couple talking with Lindy and Michael on the night Azaria went missing. They testify that Lindy was only away putting Azaria to sleep for 10 minutes at the most, which, as you mentioned, Charlie, it would have been a tight deadline to work with to commit a murder and dispose of a body, even just temporarily hide a body. The Lowe's also back up Lindy's testimony that they heard Azaria cry out after Lindy had returned from putting the baby to sleep. Another witness claimed that a dingo attempted to bite and pull her 12-year-old daughter away. And these are the prosecution witnesses here. The only witness I could see that added anything to the prosecution story was Amy Whitaker. Amy repeats the strange comments Michael said when the search party went out, that she was probably dead by now and things like that. And that Lindy and Michael went off into the bush together alone for about 15 minutes when the prosecution later argues that would have been when they buried Azaria. But it wasn't until the forensic experts were called to the stand that things started to go more in the prosecution's favour. They indicated the blood pattern on Azaria's clothing was what you would expect if her neck was cut with a sharp object, such as scissors. I don't know how they can say only scissors and not sharp objects like dingo teeth. And why scissors and not a knife? Like, I don't know why they were so caught on scissors. And that the jumpsuit tears were more like cuts and not animal tears. And that the small loopings of toweling that they found in Michael's camera bag was what you would get from a cut-up jumpsuit. 
And the prosecution's argument was that Lindy hid Azaria's body in the camera bag temporarily until her and Michael could get away and bury Azaria. The defence counter-argues that the same loopings could be also left behind from a new unwashed jumpsuit and that sometimes the Chamberlains packed Azaria's clothing in there, which I mean is quite possible. I've done that before with my own camera bag when my kids were little. I have a disposable, a clean, obviously, disposable diaper in probably every single bag I own. Because, you know, you just bring stuff with you just so you have it. Me too, and I don't even have children. (laughs) Okay, that's not weird at all. (laughs) So the evidence that would have been most damning to the Chamberlain's case was that of biologist Jay Curl. She testifies that the blood found under the steering column was that of an infant. However, apparently all the samples used in that testing had been destroyed, which Curl claims was standard procedure. Do you see this, Brooke, when you interview wrongfully convicted people, that they have trouble getting access to the evidence that could exonerate them? Yeah, and usually it's because it's misplaced or it's standard procedure to to destroy it after a certain amount of time. I did an interview once, and they talked about how the justice system wants to get them done with and have finality in their judgments, so that's a way that they can help monitor that. You know, oh, case closed all right, let's destroy the evidence. But what confuses me is it wasn't like this was 10 years later. We're looking at, what, two years? Right. I don't understand why they destroyed the the evidence, especially when they were looking at working towards getting a trial to convict Lindy. Sounds like a case of tunnel vision to me. You know, they were trying to convict her, and so they were going to make the evidence that they did have match their assumption. Yeah. And then there was another witness for the prosecution, Crown Witness Bernard Sims. He looked at about two dozen attacks by dogs on humans. Sims said that nothing about Azaria's disappearance was consistent with that of a dingo attack. Sims claimed that his research showed there would have been a lot more blood if a dingo attacked her and that there would be no way that a baby's head would fit into a dingo's jaws. However, on cross-examination, the defence brings out a picture of a dingo with the head of a life-sized baby doll in its mouth, with the dingo's teeth reaching all the way down to the baby doll's ears. The prosecution called almost 40 witnesses, and I swear half of them backed up the defence case. Exactly. And they did not provide a motive, which the U.S. is the same. I mean, our justice system comes from England, and so it's rather similar. That motive is not necessary to prove to get a conviction in the United States or Australia. So they didn't really provide a lot by way of motive. Not in the case. The media provided plenty of motives. So the defense brings out their own dingo expert who said, and just a warning, but I'm going to get graphic here, but this dingo expert, Les Harris, contends that when a dingo is after a prey the size of a zaria, they are able to relax the muscles in their jaw, allowing it to close its mouth around a prey, enough to render it immobile. Harris claimed that in the dingo kills heed scene, there is actually very little blood because the dingo would get the prey in its mouth and simply shake its head until it breaks the prey's neck. 
Besides this, the rest of the defence witnesses were basically either there to testify that Lindy was a great mother or that she displayed what you would deem normal grief at the loss of her daughter. Or two, they were witnesses that could testify about their own scary experiences with dingoes near Uluru, or they knew how vicious the dingoes were in that area. On October 28, 1982, the jury retired to make their decision, and by the following day they had. The jury found Lindy guilty of murder and Michael guilty of being an accessory after the fact. Lindy was sentenced to life in prison and Michael was given a suspended sentence. Lindy gave birth one month into her sentence to another daughter, Kalia Chanel Nikiri Chamberlain. So one thing that I thought about, and I can't help but wonder, if she was found not guilty, would she be like the Casey Anthony of the 1980s? Basically, she'd live under this cloud, assuming she was guilty. Everyone assumed she was guilty for the rest of her life. But because she was found guilty and then appealed and the evidence was scrutinized to a really a much larger degree. I mean, most people thought she was guilty and then it's gone to most people thinking she was not guilty. Not that I think anyone should spend time in jail for something they didn't do just so they could maybe clear their name one day. I mean, that's not what I'm saying. But it was a thought that popped into my head about when someone's not guilty yet we still assume they are. And this could have gone different ways. I think about the Stephen Avery case, and a lot of people have strong opinions either way on that one. And I think that if Stephen Avery is exonerated, that many of the people who think he's guilty will still think he's guilty and he just got away with it. And it's the same in this case, because even after all these years, and Australian opinion, public opinion have shifted strongly in her favour, but there are still people who doubt her innocence. I was saying to Charlie earlier that I spoke to people in my day job this week and they commented that there was just something shifty with her story. So there are still people who question her innocence all these years later. Well, like Ali had said, Lindy gave birth to her her daughter while she was in custody after her conviction. And two days after that, she was actually released on bail pending her federal appeal. Is that common in Australia? No. But nothing about nothing about this case is normal. Okay, that's good to know because I was like, how did she get out on bail pending an appeal? I mean, obviously we've talked about cases where people have been appealing for a while and they all sit there while they wait. Even people who've had their cases overturned sit there to wait for charges to be dropped. It's it's very unusual. But the appeal was rejected. And on April 28th, 1983, Lindy returned to jail and her daughter went to live with foster parents. And the appeal rejection, I just want to note, was three to zero. However, not quite a year later, another appeal was also rejected, but this time it was a three-two decision. Wait, so where were the older kids living? Were they living with the dad? Because he only got probation, right? Or whatever that's called. He got a suspended sentence. Yeah, I did not see where the boys went. No, I couldn't find anything that mentions the boys at all. And he didn't get the do- he didn't get the daughter? No, it, from what I read she went to a fo- she went to actually a series of foster homes after Lindy went to jail for return to jail. That's so interesting to me. Maybe if she was a boy that wouldn't have happened, but maybe because of 
what he was convicted of and it was another daughter don't know that that's a good point maybe it was just not giving them another baby another opportunity to do it again right so a lot of people thought she was guilty and i was reading that when the guilty verdict came people were cheering but many people believe she was innocent, and her supporters kept fighting for her. Over 100,000 people signed a petition for her release, and the media, of all people, they were instrumental in turning people against her. They started questioning the science behind the prosecution's case, and that spurred on this Free Lindy movement. This case took a sharp turn in January of 1986. Lindy had always claimed that her daughter was wearing this outer jacket which is essentially like a cardigan for us Americans over here, over her clothing. And that jacket was never found. And many thought she was lying about it to account for there not being dingo saliva all over the clothes that were found. And in trial, she described this as a white jacket with yellow trim. In January of 1986, an English hiker named David Brett was climbing Uluru, one summer evening, when he lost his footing and fell to his death. So due to the terrain, it took eight days for searchers to find his body at the bottom of the rock, and they found him in the vicinity of dingo lairs. While looking for some of his remains that were thought to have been carried off by the dingoes, searchers did find a small child's jacket, and it was white with yellow trim, exactly like Lindy described. And it was also found half buried, like the reports of how the other clothing was found, and it was close to these dingo lairs. But the jacket wasn't the only thing discrediting the prosecution's case. So that fetal blood that we talked about that was found under the steering column was actually found in 10% of all the makes of that car. It turned out that this sound deadening spray that would overspray, I guess what we would call it, when it's all over the car where it shouldn't be, that's being used in the manufacturing process caused both the discoloration and the false positive test. And I had read that maybe there was another spot of blood that turned out to actually be overspill of a drink that had proteins in it. A milkshake, yeah. A milkshake that would have protein in it. So given that the clothing and the blood evidence were such a large part of the trial, the whole thing started falling apart. And on February 7th, 1986, Lindy was released from prison after serving three years. It's been reported that this release, which was, what, a month after they found the jacket, was actually more a case of political pressure than this case of wanting to write an injustice. There was a journalist who had been following the case and wrote a scathing piece about how the Northern Territory government of the day mishandled this case and threatened to publish it if she wasn't released. That's the story going around. So since Lindy had reached the end of all her legal options, I mean, she had exhausted the appeals process at this stage. So federal and territory laws had to be changed to allow for a royal commission to completely exonerate Lindy and Michael. A judicial inquest followed and in May 1987, Justice Trevor Morling issued a 379-page report which was highly critical of the original investigators and the techniques they used, as well as key prosecution witnesses in the trial. 
He thought that the eyewitness accounts of other campers of the night that Azaria disappeared, that they were more accurate because they saw Lindy's immediate reactions and her behaviours and they believed that the dingo took Azaria, so it's fair to take these accounts as fact. Based on the evidence put forth in the Royal Commission and the damning report of the investigation, on September 15, 1988, the Northern Territory Court of Criminal Appeals unanimously quashed all convictions against Lindy and Michael. After much insistence from Lindy, in February of 2012, a fourth and final coroner's inquest was opened. The new evidence that was considered included three fatal dingo attacks on children since the previous inquest. These attacks happened on Fraser Island, which is off the Queensland coast of Australia. There were at least 400 documented cases of dingo attacks. The one that was highlighted in the inquest was a particular attack in April of 1998, where a 13-month-old girl was dragged about one meter, or about three feet, from a picnic blanket at a campsite. Thankfully, in this case, the father saw the girl and what was happening and managed to save his daughter. That would have been so scary. I can't imagine. Australia scares me, I'll be honest. Anytime I watch Seven Deadliest Animals, five of them are from Australia. (laughs) I heard that drop bears were a myth. I'm pleading the fifth. I'm not confirming or denying. I can't. The inquest ended on June 12th of 2012 when the coroner said that a dingo was responsible for Azaria's death, which happened 32 years earlier. Azaria's death certificate was amended from having the cause of death being listed as unknown to death by dingo attack. And in 1992, Lindy received a $1.3 million compensation payment from the Northern Territory government for wrongful imprisonment, which is tragic because I say this all the time, but I'm going to repeat it right now because it's still tragic. You can't buy a person's time. And a million dollars sounds like a lot of money, but you can't give someone their time back. The memories that they couldn't have had, you can't give them their baby's first steps back. You can't repay someone's time, no matter how much money it is. She was in jail for three years, and for a baby, because she had the baby when she first went to jail, the first three years, so much happens. As you said, Brooke, your first steps, first words, everything. One thing that interests me about this this final inquest that she pushed for was she had already been financially compensated. She had already been essentially cleared of all charges and the prosecution state case was just completely destroyed. Yet it really mattered to her to have it official and to have the record reflect that. And it kind of reminds me of like Carrie Max Cook, who I was just thinking that right. Who, I mean, he was on death row. He, lost 20 years of his life he's even said i won't take compensation if you'll just give me my actual innocence that it matters so much to be declared actually innocent to have you know azaria's cause of death attributed to the dingo like i think i would be like oh okay i've been compensated i've been cleared i'm moving on until i'm there and hopefully i never will be i guess i just don't really know and it really it's really strikes me how important that is right and in some cases i've noticed is the difference between having to check the i've ever been convicted of a felon box on an application or being able to vote i mean i don't know 
Yeah, the United States has some odd rules about felons and how long felonies follow you and voting rights linked to having been a convicted felon. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. It's punishing you for the rest of your life is what it is. So some strange claims followed all these inquests. In July 2004, Frank Cole, who was a retiree from Melbourne, he claimed to have seen a dingo with a baby in its mouth at a time around when Azaria disappeared. And Frank claimed that he had shot the dingo. Police interviewed Frank and decided that his story didn't add any reason to reopen the investigation. I mean, I guess I understand that. At this stage, the death, the death certificate had been changed, Lindy and Michael had been exonerated, and there really wouldn't be any gain in reopening old wounds when Frank's story was questionable at best. And I do say questionable because our friend Frank, he went to the media with his story and made a whole heap of claims such as that he had the ribbons from Azaria's jacket as proof that he saw her being taken by the dingo. Lindy counter-argues this and says that the jacket never had any ribbons. And then Frank comes forward and claims that he was a witness to another crime that he saw convicted murderer Peter Dubas running from Faulkner Cemetery after he brutally murdered Mercina Helvargas in November 1997. So in August of 2005, a 25-year-old woman named Erin Horsberg walked into a newspaper in Alice Springs, which is the, it's the biggest city close to the rock, isn't it? Yes. And she claimed she was Azaria Chamberlain. Now, this sounds crazy, but it's not unheard of. I don't know if you guys know about the Jared Atadero case and the father, Alan, recently temporarily shut down the Facebook page about his son's case because a man was harassing him, claiming to be his son. And there is evidence that his son is deceased. And at the risk of stirring up a hornet's nest by even bringing up the Johnny Gosh case, I do suspect that the man who Noreen Gosh says visited her, if he did visit her, claiming to be Johnny, may have been one of these pretenders. So anyway, Erin claimed that she had flashbacks of being nine weeks old and feeling the dingo's jaws around her. She had scars either on her hand or arms, and she claimed those were from the dingo's. And what really clinched it for her was that when her son was born, he was the spitting image of Azaria. Aaron's claims were investigated, but ultimately discounted by the authorities and by the Chamberlain family pretty quickly. In spite of this, and in spite of a press release discounting these claims put out by the Northern Territory Police, the media ran with the story. The police followed up those media reports and the interviews with this woman with a statement saying, quote, it is disappointing that it received so much media attention given that we had advised the media that she was a vulnerable person, end quote. So I think the police realized that she may have truly believed this. She had been in foster care and adopted out. She may have actually truly believed this, but there is no evidence. The whole Azaria trial did take its toll on Lindy and Michael's marriage, and they divorced in 1991. 
Lindy does go on record and say that the reason for their divorce was there before Azaria's death. And the reason they didn't divorce earlier was due to their united front for justice for Azaria and the fight to have the world recognise how dangerous dingoes are. In February of 1992, Lindy was on a speaking tour of the US and met American publisher Rick Crichton who was also a member of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Lindy and Rick married on December 20, 1992, and they lived in Seattle for a few years before returning to Australia. And they now live, they are basically my neighbours, in the Hunter Valley of New South Wales. Lindy is now a published author. She is currently working on a children's book about explaining grief and loss to children. And she's also a quite in-demand public speaker. So do... Either of you have any closing thoughts on this case? The only thing that I really feel like I want to highlight is that I do think it sounds improbable that a dingo would go into a tent and take a baby. However, there's no other scenario that makes sense with the evidence. If Lindy did it, when did she do it? She and Azaria were around people for all but short periods, all under 10 minutes, And she killed her baby in a bloody manner without actually getting bloody herself. And she hid the body so well that 300 searchers couldn't find her in a 10-minute period. All of that happened in 10 minutes. I just don't understand how she could have done it. So while a dingo may sound improbable, the Lindy doing it sounds impossible. And I went into this thinking, there's probably a fair chance she did do it and came out of it baffled that she was ever brought to trial. I think that was the problem that there are delays in blaming the dingo. It came down largely due to precedent that there hadn't been any other dingo attack quite to that magnitude at that time. And that was hard for people to wrap their head around. But ultimately, there was never any evidence that a person was actually involved And that is the point. Everything presented as evidence was entirely consistent with a dingo or two dingoes having taken Azaria, from the drag marks to the bite marks on the clothes, the, the tracks, what people heard, what people saw, what the trackers thought. That was what the evidence supported from the start. I think it's so unfortunate that the media has such a big impact on things like this. You know, if you look at the Stephen Avery case, they played that clip of Kratz over and over and over again, like every day before the trial. And then that's where they get their jury pool from. And I think that even like investigators can have bias and are affected by these things, even if they try not to. And so I think one of the big things here was tunnel vision. They wanted to prove that Lindy was involved in this. And so they made the facts well, they tried to make the facts fit their theory rather than basing their theory on the facts. And I imagine tunnel vision it has a lot to do with a lot of wrongful convictions. And honestly, it probably has a lot to do with a lot of rightful convictions. I mean, I think tunnel vision is hard to avoid. So thank you, Brooke, for coming on our little podcast. Would you like to tell everyone more about where they can hear you? 
My show is called Actual Innocence, and it actually is the story of people who have been wrongly convicted, but the best part is it's in their words. So I try to take myself out of the episodes as much as possible because what I have to say is not nearly as important as someone telling their own story about wrongful conviction. So we took you right on out of your comfort zone tonight. I actually tried to contact Lindy to see if maybe she would be interested in doing an interview for my show, and I wasn't able to get a hold of her. So if you have a connection to Lindy and you want to ask her if she wants to be on my show, my email (laughs) is actualinnocencepod at gmail.com. And if you want to listen to my show, um, it's on iTunes, it's on all of the the big names, but you could also go to the website, actualinpod.com. And you can, there's links to everywhere you can listen to it and information about the exonerees. And you can find us on Facebook as well. And we now have a Facebook page and a group. So we will have discussion about this episode in the group. So just ask to join and we will let you in. Uh, We also have an email address, insightfulpod at gmail.com. You can talk to me on Instagram at insightpod or Charlie on Twitter at InsightfulPod. If you can and would like to support the show's growth, we have a Patreon account for an ongoing monthly donation, and we have rewards such as premium minisodes. I think the one we have at the moment is the Solway Firth Spaceman. Is that right? Yes, and next month is going to be... It's a creepy one. It's a creepy one about the son of Sam, but, you know, you think there's no mystery there, but you're going to have to listen. Exactly. I'll be listening. For a one-off donation, we have a PayPal account, and there is a bunch of cool merchandise on our online shop. All links to those, and to be able to listen to our episodes and to read some true crime articles, head on over to our website, which is at www.insightpod.com. And most importantly, you can show your support if you rate, review and subscribe on iTunes or your favourite podcast app, We Love Fives. It helps us move up the charts and helps people find us. So we will be back next week. Thanks, everyone. And thanks, Brooke. You're so welcome. Bye, guys.